All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Nehemiah chapter 2 again this week. Nehemiah chapter 2. So as you're turning there, let me get you caught up on how we got to Nehemiah. It's a historical book. And Nehemiah, up at this point, he has uh, gone to the king of Persia and asked for a request to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the gates. And uh, the king of Persia has allowed this to happen, so he's made his way back to Jerusalem. He's now assessed the damage he's gone through uh, at night, looking at everything that's going on. And now he's going to uh, rally the troops, as, as some would say. And so we had a reconnaissance mission last week. Now we're going to rally some troops in week four. And so Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 17, is where we're going to pick up. And then we're going to get into chapter 3 this morning. So let's read this. This is God's word. Verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Chapter 3. Then Elishib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. But next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. The sons of Hashanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshalam, the son of Berchia, son of Mesezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Taconites, repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joida, the son of Paseah, and Meshalam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanai. They laid its beams, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatai, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranothite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mezpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphiah, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedidah, the son of Harumaph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Malchia, son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Parath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Let's stop right there, shall we? All right. Well, let's move on to point one. Point one, kingdom work and a rally for missional action. We see a rally for missional action here in chapter 2, verse 17, verse 18, rather. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also 
of the words that the king had spoken to me, and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. The good work. A, underneath this point, I want you to see a kingdom work is a good work done God's way. Kingdom work is a good work done God's way. Nehemiah sought to do a good work God's way. Kingdom work is for the glory of God. It is not for the accolades of man. Kingdom work is for Christ, not necessarily for our comfort. Kingdom work is motivated by a love of Christ through obedience. It's not motivated by personal opinions or agendas. We must be aware of attaching God's name to things that aren't always about him and calling it kingdom work. Kingdom work is a good work done God's way. In Acts chapter 19, there's a really great story of of, uh, how the church was started and how Paul was being used for a good work. And it reads this way in Acts 19, starting verse 11. I'll stop in verse 17. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Who was doing extraordinary miracles? God. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even his handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the inerrant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. This story shows us that these men, they wanted the power of God, they wanted the prestige of Paul, but they didn't necessarily want to do the work of God for his kingdom. Oftentimes our emotions, our convictions, and our desires to do the right thing lead us to do things the wrong way. Our selfish, self-seeking, depraved hearts and minds, we want to do good things, but oftentimes we want to do them for our name and not for his. Oftentimes our attempts to follow our heart's desire allows us to attach things to God's name because we're more focused on our kingdom than his, but we want his approval. As a church, let me just go ahead and stop and say, may we always be a church about building the name of Christ and not building the name of a church. Doing a good work must be done God's way. So how do you do a good work God's way? It's founded in Scripture. It's formulated through prayer. It's affirmed through provision. And it's available to meet a pressing need. This is what we see in the pattern of Nehemiah. For missional action, it was founded in Scripture and the character of God. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. And I said, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. It starts with who God is according to his word. Then it's formulated through prayer. Nehemiah 1, verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy inside of this man. So there was a, it was founded in the scripture, in the character of God, what God says about himself. It's formulated through prayer. As he prays through this, he's then inclined to understand the will of God, which then is affirmed through God's provision. Chapter 2, verse 8, and then the king granted me what I asked. 
for the good hand of my God was upon me. Why was this granted to me? Because God's hand was in it. So he provides this opportunity, and it's now reached a point where he is available to meet a pressing need. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates burned. You see the problem. And so all of this has started with who Christ is, who God is. Then formulated through prayer, time of prayer, where we are not on our own page, but we're now moving to be on his page, his will. Then it is affirmed by his provision. He's now providing things that I know this is by the hand of God and the hand of God only to get me to this point. And now I see the pressing need for action. J.I. Packer would say in Nehemiah 2.18, the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall is classified as this good work. What makes work, a specific piece of work, or a particular activity good? Good, that is, in God's estimation. The answer is two things coinciding. First, it's intrinsic character. Second, the agent's motivation. The action itself must be biblically right. That is, it must be something that God has shown he wants done. Also, the motive of the person's performing, it must be right, namely love to God and man and a purpose of advancing God's glory. A good work done God's way. So it's not a good work if you aren't doing it God's way. A good work God's way. So kingdom work is both Christ-centered in mission and Christ-centered in motivation. Christ-centered is one of those catchy things that we say often. What does it mean to be Christ-centered? We're a Christ-centered church. Therefore, our mission statement says Christ, community, commission. Christ is preeminent. Everything is about Christ. Everything we teach, everything we sing, we're focusing on Christ. So Christ-centered, what does it mean? Paul Tripp would say it's the source. A Christ-centered life begins with realizing that the source of everything we are is the Lord. He created us, he owns us, he gifted us with talents, he authors our story. Every blessing that we receive comes from him. Additionally, Christ is the source of our daily righteousness. We have no internal desire or moral ability to live up to the biblical standards on our own, but in Christ, we have everything we need for a godly life. Christ-centered source, Christ-centered motivation. A Christ-centered life means that a person, that it is in a person, Christ, for the motivation, for everything we think, say, and do. Many of us leave little room for Christ in our Christianity. By that I mean that our ability to keep the law or our pride or our historic tradition is what defines our faith and not the person of Jesus. Paul Tripp says that there's a tendency for those who are evangelical Christians to leave Christ out of Christianity because Christianity, as we would define it, becomes more about what we do and don't do than about who Christ is and what he's done. And so when we go to explain to someone what it means to be a Christian, we usually use terms of, well, what I do and how I am and what I've done, rather than what Christ has done. So not only is he the source, but he is the motivation for everything, and that means that he's also the goal. Christ-centered life has one ultimate goal, that Jesus gets the glory. And so I ask you right now, is the goal of your life that God gets the glory? And if you can't answer yes to that, then I would say that you can't answer that your life is a Christ-centered life. The ultimate goal of everything we say and do on this planet for the short period of time that we have is for the glory of God. We're called. We're rallied for a missional action. Nehemiah did a good work God's way, but he faced criticism and questioning for doing what was good. It says there in verse 19, we've seen these names come up before, but... 
When Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Paul Van Gorder, he, he points out that these names mean different things. Samballat means hate in disguise. Tobiah means the servant. Geshem means a violent shower. So he goes on to say, Samballot represents the wisdom of the world and its opposition to Christ and his gospel. He represents the knife in your back by someone you thought was good. Hate in disguise. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 through 15. And no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. They are sheep in wolves' clothing. Tobiah, the servant, or possibly the Lord is good. He represents those who make a formal profession of faith, but their hearts have not been changed. There is no transformation of heart. There's no transformation of mind. There's no transformation of their affections. There's no transformation of their relationships. There's no transformation of the purpose of their life. You see no evidence that Christ has redeemed them, but they make a profession. And when that takes place, they go against the glory of God because they're still seeking glory for themselves. And when we rise up for a kingdom work that glorifies God, they will stand in the way. Geshem, a violent shower in this case. It was a shower of ridicule and criticism. As Ray Steadman says, the, they first mocked and ridiculed. This is unusual. This is usually the first weapon the enemy employs. You may have felt it in your own, felt it when you began to recover from your own ruin. Your friends laughed at your desires to change. They may have ridiculed your religious convictions and resented with scorn your implied criticisms of their conduct. Also, Nehemiah's enemies began to threaten and slander him with charges of rebellion and disloyalty. If ridicule does not work, then the opposition stiffens and becomes openly unfriendly and threatening. In our own terms, as he says, maybe it was when you decided that I'm finally going to live for the Lord. I'm finally going to say that it is about his kingdom and for his glory. And the ones that you used to walk with or hang out with then began to ridicule you or make fun of you. because Oh, you think you're holier than thou now, don't you? Oh, you think you're better than us. Oh, you, you can't do those things? Well, you used to do those things all the time, and so they begin to question. They begin to ridicule. They begin to pick to see if they can get you to fall back into the old pattern of life. And when you don't fall back into the old pattern of life, what happens? They become very unfriendly. They start making threats. Well, we're not going to invite you to hang out with us anymore if you're not going to be one of us. There's always ridicule when doing God's work God's way. But Jesus ultimately is the greater Nehemiah. Jesus did a good work God's way. And John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus did a good work God's way. And in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, that, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. 
Jesus came to do a good work God's way. And even here he says, I have accomplished the work you have sent me to do. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. And Jesus faced criticism and questioning for doing what was good. And he calls us to a kingdom work that will encounter the same. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Matthew 10, 16 through 22, behold, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you will speak or what you will say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put, in, put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. There's a kingdom work that is a good work done God's way, and Jesus now rallies us for missional action. Verse 20 in Nehemiah chapter 2, it says, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. This is God's work, and he will see it accomplished. He's called us, and now he sends us, and so it's his work. He's the one who has all authority. This reminds me of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He rallies his church for missional action, for his glory. It's his work. He has all authority, so we are called to be living sacrifices. As the body of believers, the church, we're called to lay down our lives at the altar, to take up our cross, to follow Jesus, and to go into all the world making disciples for his glory. So it's a kingdom work and a rally cry for mission. So there's a kingdom work, number two, and the response of missional people. If you don't mind, I'm not going to read all those verses again. So we'll just take what Albert Muller says. One level, chapter 3, belongs in the appendix. It appears of interest only to civil engineers. But it is also the picture of the Old Testament people of God at work. These people matter. Their names are written in God's word. Because they saw a kingdom work and they answered a call. So you see, as they begin, they do the sheep gate, the fish gate, the old gate, the valley gate, the dung gate, the, mount, the fountain gate, the horse gate. And what they're doing is they're working their way around the city in a counterclockwise fashion. And there's a passion behind the work. Kingdom work and the response of missional people. There's a passion from consecration. A passion by location, a passion in vocation, and passion with generations. This is what we see throughout this list of names that are really hard to say. Where they're working, you see that there is a passion for the kingdom work to be done by consecration first. Then in locations where they're working, by vocations, they're working, they all have different jobs, they're all 
but they're all a part of the kingdom work. And then you see multiple generations that are at work in this. So it starts with the sheep gate, the consecration. Then Elishib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The sheep gate, it was used for bringing in sacrifices into the temple. It was the most important part, so they began with the sacrifices. This is the way that we can be right with God, and so this is the one thing that we need to make sure is, is built so that we know that we can be right with God. And so they built it, and they consecrated it. It was set apart. It was holy. They prayed over it. This is it. This is the beginning of the work. Next to them, the locations you see. Take, for instance, verse 10. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. I love this. Well, he walks out his front door and he goes, I guess I'll start here. This looks like a good place. It's tore down. I'll just, I'll just walk across the street and start working. Wow. Mission, missional people see the need across the street just as much as they see the need across the world. Do your neighbors know Christ? Do your coworkers know Christ? Are there opportunities that are given to you to be a missional people on a daily basis where I'm just going to start where God has me? My, my location, this is it. I'm going to be a missional person for the glory of God right where he has me. They worked with various vocations. There are priests listed, Levites, temple servants, goldsmiths, merchants, perfumers, officials, high officials. You've got a list of all types of people throughout this whole chapter that were at work. And this shows us that kingdom work doesn't just happen inside a church. Kingdom work happens as you go to your vocation each and every day. There is a work to be done for the glory of God with the perfumers that work at, I don't know, Bed Bath & Beyond. I don't know where you work. That's not it. I don't shop there. Perfumers have the work of God to do, just like officials have the work of God to do, just like goldsmiths have the work of God to do. There's a kingdom work for the glory of God, and it's in location, by vocation, and it's got a multi-generational look to it. Verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of, Jer of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Number one, I want you to see this. Ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. This is a high official. This is the type of person who hires people to work underneath him. But this person is going to get his hands dirty. And not only that, he's going to take his daughters along with him. If we want to see our next generation become missional-minded people for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, it's going to take parents taking their kids along with them and saying, let's go do missions together. So parents, I implore you, look for ways to take your daughters and your sons along with you as you do missional work, whether it's across the street or across the world. Whatever it is, come with me. We've got a work to do for the king. Jesus is a greater Nehemiah. I'm so thankful for the passion of Christ. Not the movie. That was a good movie. But the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ. The suffering of Christ is the start of all kingdom work. It was his good work done God's way. 
And because of his work done God's way, we now are invited to be part of the, king, the kingdom. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They began at the sheep gate because without the sacrifice of Christ, none of us are consecrated. None of us are set apart. None of us are holy. None of us are able to do a work for the king. The kingdom of God begins and hinges on the sacrifice of Christ. Our new covenant people who are set apart by the blood of the Lamb hinge everything on Christ. It begins with the consecration, the passion of Christ, and moves from there to a passion from Christ. Because of what Christ has done, we have now been given a passion to be a part of his work. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is a kingdom work, there is a good work that is to be done God's way and it's for the people of God to see that God has created me for his work, the good work, the kingdom work. And so it is a passion of Christ, it's a passion from Christ. And now we see it's a passion in Christ. So if the passion of Christ saves us and makes us holy, then the passion from Christ sends us and now there's a passion in Christ because that's who we are. It's our identity. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, and this is a typo in this slide, so bear with me. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There's a purpose In his will, he has chose us in him. We are in Christ, and so that is our new identity. 2 Peter 1.3. Now, that's not the verse. That's just repeated because that's what happens when you paste and copy and don't catch it. But let me read this to you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In Christ, he has granted us all things needed to live for his kingdom, to work alongside him. As J.I. Packer again says, the New Testament teaches that every Christian has a twofold calling. First, God calls each of us individually to believe and to serve. The first calling, so named because of God's intention to turn from sin and trust Christ for eternal life, is at its heart is actually the work 
a power whereby God brings us to faith through the Holy Spirit's action and illuminating us through the gospel and moving us to a response. So there is a effectual calling, as some would call it. The second one be, I would call, an evidential calling. How do people know that you are in Christ? Well, there's evidence because the kingdom work is about bearing fruit in Christ. There is a fruit that is produced in the life of a believer, as Galatians 5 says in verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the things that the Spirit produces in us, reactionary, not actionary. And so we see that the fruit of the Spirit begins to change the believer from the inside out so that they can do a good work. And as Jesus says in John 15, 4 through 8, Abide me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is an evidential calling. So to sum this up, the kingdom work is in Christ, according to his word, applied by his spirit, accomplished by his church, and affirmed by his providence, and all for his glory. Kingdom work according to his word, applied by his spirit, accomplished by his church, affirmed by his providence, and all for his glory. John chapter 14, 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever abides in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. God has given you a new heart with a specific burden for that which is broken. And he calls you to do a work, to continue the work that he began. As John Piper says, all of us who believe in Jesus will carry on with his work And in some wonderful way, do something greater than the works of Jesus. And as a means to that end, we'll have access in prayer to Jesus today so that everything we need, we can ask for and receive it. Your life is a display of the trustworthiness of Jesus. So God's evidential calling is accomplished by his church through a variety of ministerial gifts, just as the work in chapter 3 was done by a variety of different people. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And it is by His providence. His timing is perfect. The circumstances you find yourself in, the places you find yourself working is all by God's design for kingdom work. In Acts chapter 17, 24 through 27, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God does not need you to do anything. Did you know that? He doesn't need you to do anything. Your doing good works does nothing to save you. However, in Christ, you're invited to join in his work. You're invited, you're equipped, and he has given all authority to accomplish it. As Jesus tells a parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, you're familiar with this. He gave five, he gave two, and to another he gave one. To the one who got five, five more were gained. To the one who gave two, two more were gained. But the one, you remember the one? He also had received the one talent. He came forward saying, Master, I knew that you're a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid my talent in the ground. Here, you can have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Oftentimes, the one who's in the most danger of not working for the kingdom is the one who thinks he doesn't have enough to offer. We've all been given a gift, and if you are in Christ, you are called to a kingdom work. So church, will you join Jesus in his work to redeem those who are lost?